Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. Uh, so a month or so ago, uh, Queen Linda from LDN Land asked me to, uh, actually she commanded me to do this lecture because somebody fell through. And uh, as far as my disclosures, well, it's clear, as you will see, I'm not a pain management doctor who delves into the mechanisms of pain, and yet I deal with pain uh, in my practice every day. Um, so I'm going to try to make sense of it and um, make it more aware. Um, and then also look at the patients that I treat that have pain. And then uh, I'll do the impossible, which is to look at the 177 uh, conditions, diseases, um, and problems that LDN addresses and has been shown to be helpful on our website and, um, and do so in an ophthalmological um, manner. You'll see what I mean in a little bit. Uh, so it's a broad discussion. We'll look at the mechanisms um, and look at my pain patients. Uh, in general, you've got sensory somatic nerve uh, pain and neuropathic pain. That's abnormalities of the nerve coming from the brain or in the uh, periphery from the spinal cord. But let's not forget the most important tract in our body, from my perspective, the gastrointestinal pain. So that's visceral hypersensitivity, uh, gut pain. And um, in general, you can poke the uh, gut with pins as opposed to the uh, skin, and you won't feel pain. But if you stretch it or you apply some toxins to the peritoneal lining, then you will have pain. And those are two extra mechanisms of pain. So sensory pain, uh, this is the thing that LDN really doesn't deal with per se, uh, but it's straightforward and an important factor where pain mechanisms uh, go to the dorsal horn of the spinal canal and then up to the brain. And if you're in the airport getting a I love LDN tattoo, you know that's where the pain is because it's specifically applied to your body. It's the inflammatory pain that gets these uh, sensory nerves more inflamed, and that's in part what we're dealing with when we're trying to apply the mechanism of uh, LDN. We're trying to get at the uh, white blood cells, uh, maybe the mast cells involved with the uh, release of cytokines that inflame the cells as well, uh, in particular things like rheumatoid um, and uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, neuropathic pain can be peripheral, as I suggested initially, or central. Um, it gets very complex, but recruitment of nerves can result in chronic uh, pain. Um, and then also in the brain, uh, excitation of the microglia, which are those stationary macrophages that uh, protect our brain cells, uh, the nerve cells up there from damage. Um, and live there for a long time that can get excited and then develop neuroexcitatory pain. So with respect to peripheral nerve pain, we see a variety of things listed here. 
complex regional pain is a phenomenal, interesting problem where pain drifts from one side of the body to the other, um, uh, and it is associated with cytokine formation. Um, the common themes in this are inflammation, ischemia, toxicity, trauma, and pressure, and central pain. Centralized pain uh, can come from certain brain lesions, uh, compression, but also uh, multiple sclerosis patients and uh, uh, Parkinson's patients can have centralized pain. And so factors of inflammation and in the above two uh, disorders, autoimmune phenomenon play a role as well. Cytokines are so important. Um, you know, there's different lingo that I've got up here that you could look at later in terms of the different names of them, lymphokines, monokines, chemokines, depending on which cells are secreting them. And there can be pro-inflammatory uh, and preventative anti-inflammatory cytokines. So for instance, the IL-10 is an anti-inflammatory cytokine, and IL-6 is one of the most potent pro inflammatory cytokines. And these, this inflammation can uh, excite uh, nociceptive type pain. So the woman getting that um, tattoo may well have other things going on in her body that will make that pain worse. And, um, and then those patients who have uh, CRPS that starts with the, uh, can be a minor injury such as a fracture, and then there's local uh, interleukins that are formed and stay there, and then subsequently circulating uh, cells develop those uh, parameters that cause pain elsewhere. So um, in terms of relieving pain, endorphins, of course, uh, whether you give uh, narcotics or you depend on your own endorphins, uh, excite the mu um, receptor, and that's how we have analgesia. Uh, it's in the brain, and it's in the spinal cord. That's where the mu receptors for analgesia live. Um, also, um, T cells um, and LDN are, of course, an important factor. And if you reduce the activity of the T cells, reduce cytokine production by T cells, uh, notably IL-6 and TNF-alpha, uh, you may have a benefit. And then T cells um, can be regulated uh, hopefully, by uh, endorphins um, and LDN in particular, and um, looking at that as a mechanism of action for pain in mast cell activation syndrome, and because uh, certainly there's a, a T cell link uh, between uh, uh, this condition. So microglia, I pretty much reviewed. Um, the key thing there is that there's a toll receptor, toll-like receptor, on the microglia in the brain, and uh, LDN blocks that. And uh, perhaps uh, it, what we just need are short bursts of that in terms of blockade to do its job to tone down those microglia. So here are the syndromes that I deal with on a regular basis. Certainly IBS and restless leg syndrome are the most common things I see. And I'm seeing more and more of uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia POTS. And I'm recognizing more uh, mast cell activation syndrome patients in my practice than ever before. 
So irritable bowel syndrome, which I'm going to be tackling later this afternoon, um, there are certainly uh, things going on with increased permeability. The T cells um, uh, secrete uh, TNF-alpha, which breaks down the permeability of the gut and allow excitation of T cells, and those secrete cytokines. In terms of giving LDN, you'll see approximately 50% of my patients have benefit. Interleukins, um, so inflammation in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'm gonna uh, hold off on too much of this discussion, but a lot of things go wrong when the gut has too many bacteria in the small intestine. We get this inflammatory response, which becomes systemic and affects the pain mechanisms throughout the body. Uh, also, uh, in case I forget, uh, one of the inflammatory markers opens up the vascularity, so it increases vascular permeability, and that causes leakage of inflammatory cells into an area where you might not want it, such as joints, for instance. Um, mast cells, I think, are going to play more and more an important role. We're going to see, we're going to hear from one of our speakers today who is in the lab looking at pain. Uh, Dr. Younger, I see him in the back there, and I'm throwing out this gauntlet to him that I'd love to see more work on mast cells out of your labs, because I think it's very important. 2004 was the first time mast cell, uh, the notion that mast cells are important, entered the GI world with this work from Italy, and they found that the closer the mast cells were to the intrinsic nerves of the gut lining themselves, the more pain that patients had. So uh, the graph shows see, graph shows that the uh, more mast cells, the closer they are to the nerves, the more pain the pain ha patient had. And they also measured uh, tryptase levels and histamine. And histamine is definitely not just a thing that makes you itchy; it's actually a uh, nociceptive uh, chemical causes pain. Mast cells are also sh shown to be important in uh, chronic pelvic pain syndromes, such as IC and chronic prostatitis. And this is where mast cells get really interesting. Um, these scavenger cells are important in our healing and producing the bone marrow and then migrate to tissues and generally don't circulate in the blood. Uh, can be stimulated by many different things. Even in the brain, there are chemicals that will activate mast cells. And so perhaps some of what we go through uh, with stress and pain uh, is partly uh, CNS-driven. In the gut, um, a variety of conditions that maybe destroy the gut or activate gut uh, factors will trigger mast cell migration. And when you get the cell that has uh, over 200 mediators that can be released, some which cause vasodilation um, and flushing and hives, and some that cause inflammation and pain, things get exciting. So uh, that's IBS. Restless leg syndrome is a thing that I've been uh, syndrome that I've been working on since 2005. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, so uh, in terms of why people get pain, a lot of my refractory pains that come to me for an opinion, second opinion, is because of pain. So uh, the syndrome is basically the compelling urge to move the legs, usually associated with discomfort or pain. 
uh, relieved by walking temporarily. And um, so there is some interesting data showing decreased um, numbers of endorphins in the brain. And um, there's decreased iron, likely due to inflammation and possibly this uh, hormone called hepcidin that the liver makes. And uh, if you add uh, endorphins in the means of uh, LDN, then there's a decrease in pain, uh, both with or without antibiotics, because um, there's an overlap with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And in the bottom line, about 57% of my patients improve, and more details are in the LDN book for $20. Thank you, Linda. Uh, fibromyalgia, I'm a neophyte in this. I was sitting at a table the first night having dinner with fibro, the fibro team of the world, um, and it was really very interesting hearing all the modalities involved. Let's just not forget the gut. There's a high, high incidence of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, which plays a role. There have been uh, microbiome uh, analysis changes, so dysbiosis is part of it. Uh, and I'm going to skip to that, um, skip over this since others involve more than me. Complex regional pain syndrome. This is uh, one of those cases of the year. I presented it at another conference and uh, finally was accepted for publication. And a woman with obstructive sleep apnea, which on its own causes inflammation, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, yet another inflammatory pain condition, and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, yet another pain condition, uh, suffered for eight years. She was treated for each of these three problems, and her symptoms um, went away. And I just saw her in follow-up uh, four years later, and she's doing... Great. Um, then I've had two, uh, three other patients who have either failed or partially responded to narcotics, and they've had tremendous results with LDN. Ellis Danlos, there's pain, uh, and another. You have to admit uh, when you're looking at a complex syndrome that there are many different reasons for problems. So you have to uh, be concerned about you know entrapment of nerves, uh, central. Um, uh, hypersensitivity with uh, activity of the glia, but I think uh, some of these patients have mast cells, and in fact, newer research has shown mast cells to be increased in the skin of Ellis-Danlos patients in uninvolved areas, and so, so theoretically, they may well be involved in the joints, releasing uh, their mediators and causing pain. And to emphasize this point, uh, I'm going to talk about that in a moment with a single case, uh, and again, on how could uh, LDN work with mast cells? Well, it can block toll-like receptors. So uh, you're looking at the elbow of a patient who has uh, celiac disease, uh, it was recognized, she went on a gluten-free diet, um, and she kept on having these uh, itchy, burny uh, vesicles. And it was such that, you know, for two years she was bothered. She came to see me owing to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and the uh, rash was addressed and the joint pain was addressed by saying, okay, let's think about using LDN. And I had seen many patients with eczema um, and psoriasis associated with celiac disease where a gluten-free diet helped. And... I said, okay, well, let's think uh, and look at your 
pattern of treatment of the refractory dermatitis herpetiformis. And she had a significant drop in her itching within a, two weeks. Uh, most of the rash was gone by two months and complete remission at three months. And during these two years that we've been dealing with her, her pain is dramatically reduced in her joints. So that brings us to POTS and mast cell activation syndrome. Um, and I'm working on a case uh, which is actually addressed in the auditory uh, podcast that you've got. And, uh, and I also looked at my own patients in the study. Uh, and many patients with POTS and mast cell disease have GI symptoms. And I've looked at some of the patients I've dealt with over the years and just couldn't figure out. And in retrospect, they all have these two conditions. Um, and just in the patients that I had, um, LDN, let's focus on the bottom paragraph for time, LDN helped GI symptoms on their own significantly, and five out of 11 felt, felt that their POT symptoms got better. So mechanisms of action, perhaps uh, through reducing T cell activity, um, which plays into reducing mast cell activity, possibly reducing B cell activity, reducing autoimmune antibodies that are causing POTS. And then the last pain uh, condition that I've dealt with and, uh, is sarcoidosis. So um, I saw a patient who presented uh, with large lesions in the spleen and enlargement of the liver, and the radiologist cannot, said, cannot rule out malignancy, so the intern referred her to me for evaluation. Uh, she had a long-standing history of, uh, of sarcoidosis. She was taking tetracycline chronically to suppress pain uh, in her skin. Uh, she had this hot, what she described as a hot poker pain um, in the facial rash, uh, which was under remission when I saw her uh, because she was taking uh, suppressive therapy with an antibiotic. So um, this uh, patient received 4.5 milligrams of naltrexone, and uh, she was able to get off of um, tetracycline, and all the liver lesions and all the spleen lesions went away. So this is going to be published soon in press. It's been accepted. And then a patient of mine presented with abdominal pain. Uh, she was actually my nurse. And um, so biopsy showed sarcoidosis. And she had significant pulmonary problems as well and prioritis, peritis, and joint pain. And all that went away with LDN. And I see her on a daily basis so I know whether it's working or not. And it's working. Okay, and, t and uh, we don't know what triggers the T cells, but certainly if you do a biopsy of the uh, sarcoidosis, uh, the non-caseating granulomas, they're all a collection of T cells. And we know from yesterday's lectures how important it is to control cell growth, and that's what's happening in sarcoidosis. And I would love to see more patients like that. So, uh, how much time do I have? Really? <clears throat> okay, so we'll have more time for others to talk because um, the rest of it was meant to be, well, why do LDN-responsive disease disorders and conditions 
get better. So, you know, I'm not sure how many Vimeos we have on the uh, website, but quite a few. And over 600, over 600. And we have so many reports by physicians, patients, and pharmacists that LDN helps so many things. So what's central to them? And, um, and could it be inflammation? Most likely. And um, could some of it be pain? So um, when I started looking at this list originally, it was all alphabetical and, and coming up with things, uh, some syndromes I'd never heard of before, actually. And so uh, as I became close to Linda, I said, Linda, you know, my brain doesn't work this way. I need to put it in terms of if you're an ophthalmologist, you're going to look at your patients and look at ophthalmological diseases where they, they have, uh, you know, some kind of joint disturbance as well. And likewise, if, there's, if they have GI diseases, they often have other problems in other organ systems. And so I took those um, syndromes and categorized them. So that's what you'll see when you go onto the website. And so then for the preparation of this lecture, I went back through that list uh, looking at those diseases and say, okay, well, what diseases have pain associated with them? So this was going to be a very quick eye chart exam, if you will. Um, so just by organ system, if you look at the cardiovascular, so whenever you see any of these syndromes uh, in color, like Dressler's, Kawasaki's, and polyarteritis nodosa, the latter being a vasculitis, those are the syndromes that have pain associated with it. So um, I'm just going to just flip through the slides leisurely and show that uh, skin really has many conditions associated with pain. And dermatitis herpetiformis, I showed you an example, that can be painful and uncomfortable. Um, and a tremendous number. And just to point out that Haley-Haley disease was uh, published uh, recently in, uh, in a dermatology journal, uh, which is finally exciting because the dermatologists are the least likely to adopt new things. And there were a couple different um, editorials saying this is exciting. And in fact, the case report was followed by a case series, and that's interesting. And um, Psoriasis is painful too, and we had a, a wonderful talk on psoriasis by Deanna, um, and um, we're going to talk about even getting our cases together for a case series. Um, even ENT problems can be associated with pain, endocrine, and I, I do want to point out to Paul um, that was just brilliant and so exciting to see uh, experimentation in diabetes it makes sense, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with my endocrinology colleagues. Uh, GI problems, certainly uh, pain is associated with many things uh, on the list, and I'm going to be talking about uh, the role of pain in irritable bowel syndrome with LDN, and inflammation, hematological conditions, now, I didn't highlight uh, malignancy so much except for myeloma, ovarian cancer, and pancreatic cancer because those do present with pain. Um, and of course, if there's metastatic involvement, many patients with cancer have pain. And so 
but in terms of direct mechanisms, um, it's not so much. The neurological conditions are really chock full of these uh, inflammatory pain conditions, as you can see here, even more. And in terms of keeping your eyes open, yeah, uh, even the eye uh, doctors will see patients who have pain, uh, painful conditions, and um, therefore um, these patients have reported to LDN Research Trust may be getting better in part because they're addressing inflammatory pain and inflammation elsewhere. Pulmonary disease, renal, rheumatological, chock full of inflammatory conditions, uh, such as fibro, of course, that all of these conditions, and we started off the lecture talking about rheumatoid arthritis and the role of cytokines causing excitation of pain, and uh, winding up with this list here, including the sarcoidosis. So um, I think that LDN will have some big roles if we can, in terms of pain management, if we can really dissect out and we can start creating case reports, looking at degree of pain relief in some of these conditions that I've mentioned, and um, start writing case reports, case series. I will tell you that because I've written articles before, every day I get three to four uh, emails from new journals, open access, online journals, um, who will take case reports, case series, reviews, and I think it's a good thing to do. And I think you build up the literature, it will be very helpful. Because who else do we have to lean on but ourselves, of course, uh, the foundation, um, but also to, again, create a series of um, papers, and they may not be, uh, until you have double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, be published in high-ranking journals, but it will help the patients obtain LDN from their doctors, and um, it will help uh, strengthen the argument for using this amazing non-drug drug. So my name is Neil Mehta. I am an anesthesiologist and uh, uh, board certified in pain management. I work at New York, New York Presbyterian uh, Cornell Medical Center in New York City. Uh, I grew up in Hartford and uh, then spent my time up in Boston. When Tom Brady came, I started med, uh, started med school. And, uh, and then I moved to New York for residency and fellowship and have been there ever since. Although last month I finally moved back to Connecticut and now commuting into the city every day. Um, not to trivialize or, or uh, discredit anything they're saying, but I don't personally take LDN. I don't have a, a, a chronic disease, but I have many, many patients, probably to the tune of about 300 plus, that are on LDN for various things for uh, chronic pain. And uh, it's not the bulk of my practice. The bulk of my practice is interventional pain management. I do things from epidural injections to spinal cord stimulators to intrathecal pumps stuff that you probably see here in your hospital. But when I was going through practice, I knew that there had to be more than just sticking needles in, in places to try to help these people. And there had to be more than things like gabapentin, Lyrica, all the antidepressants, and so forth. And it had to be something more than opioids. 
and something more than a medication that's going to cause all sorts of side effects. If you look at almost every pain medication, maybe outside of acetaminophen and NSAIDs, they all list potential for nausea, drowsiness, dizziness, blurry vision. You know, a lot of these patients can't tolerate that. So, again, as part of the search for something better, uh, I, I would constantly look at the literature. And then I uh, had the pleasure of reading Pradeep Chopra, who's a pain specialist like myself, out of uh, Providence, who published on the use of LDN in chronic pain. What I'm going to tell you is I'll give you a little bit of the mechanism, although Sarah was kind enough to, to um, present some of that, so I'll, I'll go through that quickly. Is that the, you know, we're still early in our study. So you know, the same standards that we hold for things like uh, Lyrica and Gabapentin having level one uh, RCT type evidence doesn't exist. And there's reasons for that, because LDN is not that expensive. There's no commercial interest outside of the compounding pharmacies uh, that can make any money off of it. And even the compounding pharmacies are not making that much, so I don't, I don't want to you know, poo-poo what they're doing. So the level of evidence that's out there is case studies, individual, well, individual cases, case studies, case reports, case series, and then some small RCTs that we are basing this on. But what I hope to, to demonstrate to you is that there's very little downside in trying, and your patients are, are really looking for something. So that said, let's, let's go in. So I have a lot of disclosures, mainly because I do a lot of research, and I do a lot of scientific advisory uh, work, um, and I will be talking about off-label usage, mainly LDN. So we'll understand the role of, of LDN and its treatment in neuropathic pain and other pain conditions. We'll understand you know, what is the emerging evidence that's available here, and where are these uh, treatments fitting in, and what can you take home and use that for? So there's always uh, an expanding list of LDN conditions uh, that are you know, amenable to be treated. Uh, ranging from fibromyalgia and Crohn's disease, you've heard a little bit about that, multiple sclerosis you've heard about, complex regional pain syndrome, a, a devastating disease for people who have it, uh, various neuropathic pains, uh, and potentially even in cancer. And the, and the overarching theme is that we are promoting healing, we're reducing inflammation as we've heard so uh, much in detail, reducing pain, maybe even a potential to re reduce opioid tolerance. So we may not eliminate opioid, but can we make the same dose or less dose more effective for a patient? And it's potential uh, use in neuropathic pain. So you heard a little bit about the mechanism. I'll just summarize that. Its activity is on the mu opioid and kappa opioid receptors, uh, lesser extent to the delta opioid receptors. We already know that its, its true indication is for opioid and alcohol abuse, and that's at that 50 milligram dose. But we're ranging anywhere from one microgram to six milligrams is the typical dosing that you see out there in the literature, uh, and that's what I use. Now, there are some people who use more. There are some people who are thinking about even less, potentially. And these are all oral doses. There are even some talks about intrathecal uses and so forth. But that's, again, 
very, very limited evidence there. And then there was this misconception that if it's like the 50 milligram dose, that it would potentially cause withdrawal when you're on an opioid. And that's not true. So you can use these doses with an opioid, and I do almost every day, and I use it with buprenorphine, tramadol, and uh, have combined with other opioids as well very easily. And so you know that this is temporarily uh, causing an inhibition of these opioid receptors, and therefore you're seeing a, uh, uh, a response with a production of your natural endorphins. And that's what's leading to uh, potential for pain relief there. You have antagonizing of the toll-like receptors, uh, activity at the glial cells, and all these uh, uh, activities against the immune system that you've heard in more detail just now. So again, summarizing that, you see a lot of mechanisms of action here that could potentially impact a patient's chronic pain. This is a paper on describing that opioid rebound hypothesis. Again, to put a little bit of evidence behind why a patient would have an increase in production of endogenous opioids in their, in their body. And then we talked about a combination of LDN and opioids. There was actually a, a product that was out there. And the idea was that if you combine oxycodone with LDN, that potentially you could impact and reduce the chance of tolerance over time. But it wasn't really viable because it was a fixed dose of oxycodone, and we know that oxycodone does not have one set dose for our patients. There's a range of folks that, uh, that a range of doses. Therefore, uh, it, it sort of fell out of favor. But com combining oxycodone or other opioids with, again, uh, ultra low dose or low dose uh, naltrexone has potential. So you've heard of some of the papers already that are out there on uh, fibromyalgia from Jared Younger. Again, patients receiving 4.5 milligrams of LDN versus placebo. Small case series of 30 patients, uh, uh, and you see an impact in uh, pain relief and improvement in mood. Good enough in a condition that, where it's not that responsive to our traditional things like gabapentin, and Lyrica, and Cymbalta. Then you have uh, my, my friend uh, Pradeep Chopra, who has published on CRPS. Are there, are there folks in the room that don't uh, know CRPS? Okay. So complex regional pain syndrome, also previously known as reflex sympathetic dystrophy, in real lay terms is essentially a false alarm in your body triggering a pain response. These patients may or may not have had a history of an injury, like a nasty uh, car accident, a crush injury, some sort of nerve uh, compression, or potentially sometimes we don't know why, uh, where they have severe pain to the point that even wearing clothes or the wind blowing can react and trigger a pain crisis for them. And it's pretty debilitating. There's limited treatments out there for them. Uh, and most of the treatments are pretty aggressive, things like ketamine infusions, uh, spinal cord stimulation implants, or heavy, heavy dose uh, opioids. So here we have the potential for LDN 
making an impact. And this was a, uh, in the top left, you can see a uh, pretty severe case and then the reversal of that for this patient. And then here's another case, a similar type thing. Again, a patient with disfigurement, discoloration, potential impact on their nail beds, all related to the CRPS, seeing reversal with that, uh, starting at three milligrams daily and going to four and a half. Then we have a case of a patient that had diabetic neuropathy. Again, another condition that doesn't respond well to our traditional treatments. Same things that are applied, gabapentin, Lyrica, uh, deloxetine, so forth, uh, and LDN showing very good promise there. Then what is its impact on cancer and why is a pain specialist talking about that? Well, we are starting to see the role of the opioid growth factor in cancer proliferation. So one of the things that comes up in anesthesiology and cancer surgery is that if we use high amounts of opioid during their surgery and potentially in their post-op treatment, do we impact their chance of recurrence of their cancer? So there's this movement towards opioid reduction or opioid-free surgeries using a lot of nerve blocks, regional anesthetics. And on that similar note here, can LDN uh, impact that opioid factor and, and potentially treat uh, or impact cancer recurrence? So that was in ovarian cancer, but we're also potentially seeing that in pancreatic and uh, colorectal uh, carcinomas as well. Going back to uh, the use in pain, you see a larger case series with some of the same folks from Stanford, again, looking at patients with chronic central pain syndrome. So central, we think that is a, there's a more wider spread, there's an upregulation of their pain receptors, and therefore they are becoming more sensitized. It's ones often the most difficult patients that we're working with that say a lot of things hurt, a lot of areas hurt, and, and therefore we use that LDN to reverse some of that central sensitization to reduce their overall pain levels. So then the question is, are we impacting pain or are we improving something else? We've talked about studies that improve mood, but here's a study that used a questionnaire and they found that the highest impact was actually in energy level. Energy level more than pain relief. And yet patients really like that. They like, they, again, all their treatments are potentially sedating and here they have one that's giving them energy. Now, some will actually acknowledge that that energy level comes at all times of day and night and leads to insomnia. When we were originally talking about LDN, we said that the, the endogenous opioid production is, is the opportunity for pain relief. The thought is that you produce most of that at nighttime, so therefore should we use LDN at night? But I've talked with colleagues uh, about this, and we find that switching these dose, these patients to AM usage doesn't really negatively impact their pain relief, and they get daytime energy. So now I offer patients to take it when it's most convenient for them, either first thing in the morning or last thing at night. So as this is becoming popular, you see more and more people on it. I'm trying to do uh, some retrospective studies at Cornell, and people spread the word of LDN. My colleagues are using it in the pain management clinic. 
but now the GI docs are using it, and now the other, other departments are starting to get into it. So we're seeing a nice proliferation of, of usage. And that's happened globally, partly because of the efforts that are happening from Linda and so forth, so all, all good things. But um, we also, as scientists, want to know, you know what is the impact on usage? Is it popularity and, that's coming from the usage of LDN, or are we truly seeing a, a reduction? So there was a TV series in Norway that talked about LDN and all the wonderful things that I'm sharing and Sarah has shared with you. And one of the things that they talked about was that uh, opioid opioid usage was a crisis in Norway as well. And in the documentary, they briefly mentioned that it may interact with opioids and therefore it's advised to come down or discontinue their opioids. So they saw a big impact in opioid or in LDN usage from 20 to 15,000 in just a matter of two years. And the annual over, uh, opioid consumption was dropping significantly. So excitement for it, but we have to take it in perspective, be a little bit uh, critical of it. And some claim that it can cure everything from cancer with multiple sclerosis. I think the evidence is showing, but we need to do more tests. Going back to some of the other evidence that's out there, two studies, total of 46 subjects looking at Crohn's disease. This particular study showed that there's insufficient evidence to conclude the efficacy of LDN. But again, this is on a, on a population basis. I hope that between Sarah and my talk, you'll see that there's very little downside to trying LDN. And so the opportunity to try it and maybe have a different result is there. In MS, uh, safe therapeutic option. Efficacy is unknown in this particular study, but we have living uh, evidence of it here in the room. So then, if you just do a literature search about everything that comes up with LDN, and that's part of my job is to help you, uh, you know, see that, you'll see some things that contradict each other. So here's a particular uh, case report of a patient that came to the ER, was on LDN, received a, mono, uh, a minimal dose of opioid, oxycodone, and the patient was uptunded. And the authors conclude that they think that the LDN caused that. I'm not sure. And on the other side, we had another patient, 48-year-old, admitted for surgery, for emergency surgery due to uh, perforation, received uh, intra-op opioid to manage the pain for that surgery and required basically everything in the hospital to put that patient down. So, you know, contradicting each other, again, when you have case reports, you have, that's the lowest level of evidence besides just expert opinion. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. So what are the future directions? Well, can you combine this with other multimodal therapy? And the answer is yes, and there's very little downside. It doesn't interact with anything that is of significance in the pain community world. And so here they combine it in uh, pregabalin or gabapentin in fixed dose ratios, and they showed in a basic science rat model that they showed a reduction of allodynia there. Other future directions, looking at the basic science of what, what uh, inflammatory markers are being reduced and what cytokines are, are changing with the usage there. 
So I alluded to this in the beginning. Why is there a lack of these high-quality trials, the same level of trials that you would need in the FDA? And that's because LDN is cheap. It's one of the few things that we have available to us in such an inexpensive way. So I prescribe uh, LDN. I use a tablet, and I use a particular pharmacy, and they give me 60 pills for $35. I asked the pharmacist in the back of the room, uh, you know, what are their charges? They're right on, right on the same price. And so it's available to you, not just one pharmacy, but a, a number of pharmacies. And it's very flexible in that dosing, and you can get a patient onto a particular dose and potentially even reduce it further in cost. But because there's not a lot of profit margin in this drug, somebody's got to pony up the money to do these large-scale studies. So how do, we, how do we get around that is we spread the word, and hopefully you collect your data through use of resources from Linda and the Research Trust and the app that's uh, out there for, for LDN to enter in your patient data. And hopefully then we have a larger scale database that can look beyond just 10 patients or 15 patients and see real impact. So that's what this is. This is the grassroots movement of folks that are interested and believe in it and now use it. So we talked a little bit about dosing. If you look in the papers, most of the dosing from Stanford is somewhere between 3 and 6 milligrams, maybe even starting at 1.5. And that paper is pretty popular. So every time I see a patient that comes to me from a different colleague, it's really just that range. But you'll, if you talk to more and more folks, you'll see that there's a broader range, and also the interval of dosing varies. So when I first started, I was starting at 3 milligrams a day, and maybe up to six milligrams. Then I started lowering my starting dose because some people were responding even sooner. And then I met some other colleagues that were using microgram dosing. And they were changing it every three days, going up from once a day to two times a day to four times a day. So you, there's still a wide range of this dosing and we don't understand. It. And it's not necessary that more is better because people have responded at milligram dosing People have responded to microgram dosing, and they have failed one or the other first. So I have taken somebody at 6 milligrams with no relief and brought them down to microgram dosing and seen a different response. This is frustrating for me. This is, I'm sure, it's frustrating for you because how do I make sense of it? How do I you know, try to start a patient on it? But it also gives me hope for patients to understand that, hey, this is not a overnight fix. I have a number of patients that I try for about a month and we stay in touch and I see them back at that fifth week and they tell me, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I'm seeing a difference. And so we talk about discontinuing it and probably 50% of the time they call me back and say, you know, I, I actually do realize and I've started taking it again. So you have to counsel your patients that we don't know the dose that's going to work for them but we have experience of trying this. And we have the ability to discontinue safely if we need to. The chance of an adverse event is extremely, extremely low. And that they may only notice it once they stop it. And that's hard, but at least educational to them. So how do you obtain it? I mean, you guys have sat through our lectures. 
So you have a pharmacy in the back of the room that's kind enough to sponsor uh, you know, the, the talk. Uh, so you need a compounding pharmacy. If you send this to CVS, they will inevitably call you 30 times and tell you that they can't make one milligram uh, and that they will give the patient 50 milligrams. And that's happened, and that's an adverse effect to the patient. So don't do that. Uh, and then you want to use this as part of your multimodal therapy. There will be some patients that respond with just this, and that's great, but they'll probably still need other treatments like physical therapy, CBT, other neuromodulators, and so forth. And then be careful about pseudoscience out there. You know, that's me being the scientist and critical of that. Look for stronger evidence before you cast it widely. I mean, use it, but understand that it may not replace other therapies that are out there for chronic disease. So, in conclusion, LDN is extremely safe. It's one of the few things in pain management that has very little downside. But it has a small body of evidence that we are growing, you know, day by day. Uh, and it's, and in my opinion, for my particular patients, it's really effective for neuropathic and fibromyalgia-type conditions, although I'm starting to see it in soft tissue-related uh, pains as well. And hopefully, with all the folks in the room today, that we can grow that body of evidence and 